0: Adoniram Judson grew up in a pastor's home. He knew all of the right answers. He knew everything that he was supposed to know. He perhaps knew more than almost anybody else his age about Christ and about the scriptures and about the gospel. But as Adoniram went to college, he went to Brown University, and while he was at Brown University, he fell in with a group of skeptics that had the same kinds of doubts and the same kind of cynicism that he found in his own heart. And as he was with this group, over the course of a couple of years, he becomes a convinced and a resolved atheist, an unbeliever. Not sure with what to do with his life, though, and knowing the family business is the ministry, Adoniram applies to seminary and receives a special exemption so that he can study uh, to be a a, a study in the seminary where they train pastors even though he is not a Christian. And it's while he's there. It's while he's there that the Lord uses some circumstances in his life to change his life forever, to open up the floor of heaven and give him a glimpse at who God really is and what Christ has really done. And he was saved. Not long after his salvation, He began to feel the Lord drawing his heart to India and that he would spend the rest of his life on mission for the Lord in India. And so as a young man, he begins to prepare and he meets a young lady named Nancy and he he wants to marry her. And his whole heart and his whole intention is that he's going to marry Nancy and he's going to move as a young married couple to India to never return back to the United States where he will reach the heathen to ask for Nancy's hand in marriage, he writes her dad a letter. He writes her dad a letter to explain to him the full gravity of what he would be agreeing to if he granted his daughter's hand in marriage. This is what he wrote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, can you consent to all of this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe to despair? Oh dads, can you imagine receiving a letter such as that one? The hand of your little girl? They married on February the 5th, 1812, and they departed from India on February the 19th, and she did die in India. So the question that we have this morning as we come to our text is, will it hit us the same way that it hit Adoniram Judson? See, Judson is just one in a lineage among Christian, in our Christian heritage of of missionaries that have abandoned this life and abandoned this treasure and have even abandoned this land that they might go and proclaim the glory of God in obscurity where nobody would even know they were there. And it's all born from this morning's text. It's all born from what Christ will say to us today. And so if you don't feel the weight that way, if you don't feel it, sitting on your soul, if you don't feel it prompting you and puncturing you and piercing you, pray that the Lord would miraculously open your eyes, come and repent of your apathy. May the Lord use this text in our lives and in the life of our church the same way that He has used it in so many missionaries gone before us. With that said, would you turn with me now to your Bibles in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. When you get there, if you would stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. We'll get in verse 16 and we will read to the very end of the book. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 32 Jesus had told his disciples what was to take place. He had told his disciples that he was headed and he was to die, but that after his death, he was going to raise, and once raised, they should prepare to meet him in Galilee. Galilee had been the center of his ministry, and that they should expect to see him there and to meet him there. Jesus, after the resurrection, sends a calendar reminder via angel, right? He gets an iCalendar update, an iCalendar alert. And he goes and he finds these female disciples that have come to consecrate the body of Christ. And he reminds them, hey, go round up all of the disciples. Go get all of the disciples and send them to Galilee. For Jesus has risen and Jesus will meet them there. Now, they, they hurry off and they go on their way. And where we arrive here this morning is at that very scene that Jesus has arrived before his disciples in Galilee, the risen Christ. There they are, his disciples that had abandoned him and betrayed him and denied him. And there they are in the presence of their leader, in the presence of their Savior, in the presence of their Lord. And so like a general with his troops, Jesus has his stunned and shocked disciples gathered all around him and he then begins to give them their marching orders to give them their mission to show and to explain to them what it is that they were to spend the rest of their lives doing what they were to do so that the church might be established and the church might be perpetuated and the church might be expanded and with it the glory of the Lord Jesus himself. So what I want us to see this morning are two pillars of the Great Commission. This week we're going to kind of zone out and really try to look at the big picture. And then next week we're going to go and and really kind of get into the weeds a little bit and see some of the specifics about what Christ has said. So I want us to see these these two pillars of the Great Commission that that Jesus has sent us in His power and that Jesus has sent us on His mission. First, let's see that Jesus' disciples are sent in Jesus's power. Jesus's disciples are sent in Jesus's power. If you'll think about these final words that Jesus gives, he bookends it, very uniquely. He bookends it in a a way that that punctuates his power as God, his power as the resurrected Christ, his authority as the Lord and Savior himself. He's using and calling on his messianic position and his messianic authority to now give to his disciples the mission that is at hand. So he gives us these, these two anchor points in the resurrection and he bookends the commissioning of his disciples that way first he says all authority has been given to me that is i have consolidated all of the authority in the creation all of the authority of the cosmos all of the authority of world seen and unseen unto myself they are all subject to me Secondly, he says, not only have I consolidated all of the authority in the world unto myself, but I am going to be ever present with you wherever you go. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And he's given these to his disciples because he knows what lies ahead. He knows the hardships that are coming. He knows the tears that will be cried. He knows the pain that will be endured. He knows the suffering that will knock on their door. He knows the loneliness is going to be real. He knows that hardship is going to be real. And so he's there in a world that is going to be blowing them back and forth and blowing them to and fro. He holds them down with these anchor points, these anchor points of his authority and his presence. So the first anchor point he explains is that Jesus gives his disciples, that is, Jesus gives us His authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, it says in verse 18. And what you need to realize is that this is against the backdrop of the resurrection. This is against the backdrop of the resurrection. I I called both of these very specifically and very intentionally anchor points in the resurrection. That is that in the life of the disciples, in the life of the Christian, whenever we feel ourselves being blown back and forth, whenever we feel ourselves becoming unstable and unsteady, it's the resurrection that steadies us again. It's the resurrection that stabilizes us. And in the very commission that Jesus gives, he has this in his mind. So when he says this, I want you to think about, if there is any proof that you are not in the chief authority over your life, if there is any proof that you are not the chief authority in your family, if there is any proof that you are not the chief authority over your own destiny, is that you're going to die. You're going to die. Every one of us in this room, without a shadow of a doubt, will certainly at some point, some of us younger, some of us older, some of us uh, well, and some of us sicker. We are all going to come to the end of our life, and when we come to the end of our lives, there is going to come a point in which we die. We're going to return to the dust of the earth, and there is not a single thing that one of us can do to stop it. We can take Botox, and we can look younger when we get there. We can have... We can eat right, and we might be a little bit older by five or six years. We can run a lot, and we might get there a decade later. But sure as the world, when it comes to the end of this life, we're going to end. Our life is going to end. That is the great authority that reigns over every one of us. That is the great power that reigns over all of us. And it reminds us in our mortality that we have very little control over what happens to us. We have very little control over where what we end up accomplishing and what we end up doing. Because, because, because ultimately, no matter if we're rich or poor, no matter if we're tall or short, no matter if we're strong or weak, no matter if we can run or if we're a paraplegic, we will die. We will die, except for Christ, except for Christ. Christ is the one who died. Christ is the one who was placed in the belly of the earth and then by the very power that resides within himself was raised. And by controlling that which is least able to be controlled in all of the cosmos, death, sin, Jesus demonstrates that there is no circumstance beyond his control. There is no power beyond his authority. There is nothing that is reigning over him, able to stop him, able to end him, able to bring his reign to a close. By overcoming life's greatest threat, he shows that he has consolidated the authority of the cosmos unto himself, slaying the ruler of this world. But this means something for us right now. This means something for us right now. This means that right now, if death can't stop Jesus, if Jesus is an authority over your grave, he is certainly an authority over the Soviet military and over the North Korean nuclear program. He is in authority over the Dow Jones and over the 2020 election. He is in authority over President Obama, President Trump, and President whomever. He is in authority over cancer, and he is in authority over HIV, and he is in authority over tornadoes and famines and pestilence and poverty. He is in authority over the Plagues that fill our land and the debauchery that we see around us. It feels as though it's unraveling at the seams. But the Lord Jesus, the one raised from the dead, has shown and demonstrated already that he reigns over it all. Philippians chapter 2 says that he came in the form of a servant. He came in the appearance of weakness. He came in the clothed in human flesh and experiencing human temptation and knowing all of the weaknesses and all of the temptations and all of the exact ways that we know them. And he died. He died as a servant He died as a substitute. He died according to the will of his father. But brothers and sisters, he was raised. And Philippians 2 says that the one who comes in the weakness of man, the one who comes in the form of the servant is the very same one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is raised. Lord, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they want to or not, here, right now, all of the congresses and all of the parliaments and all of the rulers and all of the militaries are all at the control and sovereign reign of the risen Christ. He is an authority over it all, brothers and sisters. But he doesn't just stop there, does he? He starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But look where he lands. Oh, this is a sweet promise for the church. It is an I am with you always to the very end of the age. I wonder how many of you are lonely this morning. I wonder how many of you are lonely this morning. We live in a day in which we can be more connected than any other generation in history. We, I, I have a friendship. I talk with a guy that lives in a third world country in Africa on Thursday. We're just talking on the phone, just hanging out. We live in a day in which we can have friendships on the other side of oceans. We live in a day in which which our technology is able to bridge the gap through Skype and Zoom and Facebook and Twitter, and we can become friends with people that we hardly even have access to. Yet it's equally true that though we have access to more relationships in the history of the world, that perhaps we are lonelier than any generation in the history of the world. That you can be in a room full of people just like this one and feel as though you're the only person here. Feel as though you're the only person without joy. Feel as though that you're the only person without a smile. Feel as though you're the only person that has nobody to go back home to once you leave. And you sit even in a room filled with hundreds and you are lonely. Do you know what Christ says? That if you are truly in Christ, if you're truly abiding in Christ, that if you have repented of your sin and placed your hope in the resurrected Christ, you are never alone. You are never alone. You might feel lonely. You, you might even convince yourself and, and be convinced by the temptations and the deceptions of our enemy that you are really alone. But because Christ has risen, you, my brother, you, my sister, are not alone. Christ is with you. This is what he says. John 14, John 16, right? He says, it's better that I go away. It's better that I leave this world. It's better that I go to the cross for you. It's better that I raise from the dead. It's better that I ascend to the right hand of the Father because I am going to send the very Spirit of God. I am going to send my very own Spirit to dwell in you as a temple so that my presence is always testifying that you are a child of God. So that when you are timid, it will give you courage. So that when you are weak, He will give you strength. So that when you want to back down, He will push you forward. I will always be with you. And brothers and sisters, this hope, this glory, this promise was secured in the resurrection. So you have these two anchor points. We feel as though we're being blown away. We believe as though we're, we're going back and forth and we're gonna be taken down by this world at any point. And Jesus says, no, 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 my child. No, my brother. No, my son. I am an authority over all things and being an authority over all things, I am always with you. You see how these come together? You see how these come together? These come together to form a powerful promise that because Christ is an authority over all things and because Christ is with us at all times, that it's the very power of Christ that comes into our lives. It's the very power of Christ that is demonstrated through our lives. It's the very power of Christ that brings us together as his church. That Jesus' authority over all things goes with you to all places. You see how liberating this is? Are you afraid? Right now what are you what are you worried about think of it the one before whom the generals will tremble the one before whom caesar is terrified he is with you right now he is with you right now how in the world can adoniram judson load up his young wife get on a boat and sail to india how can he do it knowing that suffering is going to come, knowing that hardship is going to come, knowing that sickness is going to come, knowing that they are leaving behind everything dear and everything that they love, he can go because Christ is reigning over it all and Christ is going with him. Martin Luther once said that one man with God is always a majority. How can it be? How can it be? Because Christ is reigning over all and Christ is with you through all. That Jesus' authority and Jesus' presence supply Jesus' power for the radical call on your life. Church, you've been called to do the impossible. You've been called by God, demanded, commanded by God. It's not an option to do the impossible. You've been called by God to disciple your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that they will walk in the ways of God and know the ways of God. And yet you are having struggles doing that yourself, aren't you? Everything in this world is pulling them in every direction. You have sex and materialism. You have peer pressure. And it's all trying to pull your children, catch the eye of your child, and pull them off the course that you know the Lord has instructed you and called you to bring them down. How? How will you ever succeed? How will you ever be able to do such an impossible task as that? Christ is with you, and Christ is in you. The power of Christ is with you, and the power of Christ goes wherever you go. You're called to go and to, to reach your, and take the gospel to your workplace, knowing that it may cost you your job. You're called to take the gospel to your neighbors, knowing that it may cost you your friendships. You're called to take the gospel to your community, knowing that it may cost you your acceptance. How can we do a task as impossible as that? The power of Christ is in you, and the power of Christ is with you. You're called to grow and to mature as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. You're called to, to grow as as a man or as a woman of God and to, to do things today that you didn't do yesterday and to be stronger today than you were yesterday. And yet it feels as though your own body is against you. And it feels as though your own appetites are pulling you backward. And it, you look at your budget and your finances are thin. You go to the doctor and your health is failing How? How can you do something as impossible, as grow in the maturity of Christ? The power of Christ is in you, and the power of Christ is with you. It steadies us. It stabilizes us in this unsteady, unstable world. It anchors us down, that Christ is reigning over all, and Christ is reigning through us. You see how freeing that is? You see how liberating that is? The second pillar that I want us to talk about this morning is that Jesus' disciples are sent on Jesus' mission. Jesus' disciples are sent in Jesus' power, and they are sent on Jesus' mission. He says there, go." verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. A, a, a helpful tip when you're studying the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore is to ask, "Why is therefore? what is therefore therefore? What, what is therefore? Th- therefore is always pointing you to something. It's pointing you back to what's just been said. What has he just said? He's just said, all authority is in heaven and on earth is, is mine. All of it is consolidated in me. So go, so go. I am reigning over it all. I am supreme in authority. So you go to the very end- edges of the earth. I am reigning over it all. So you baptize them in my name. I, I am in authority. So you teach them. You teach them not by your own authority, not by your own ingenuity, not by your own intellect. You teach them by my authority. I am sending you, but I am not sending you in your own good name, and I am not sending you with your own good ideas. I am sending you in my authority. The way that the English translation is is a little bit wooden. It's a little bit difficult to, to, trans, to, to, to interpret. It looks like there's two verbs in verse 18, doesn't it? Like when, or verse 19. When we read it, it says, go. So that looks like an imperative verb, right? Like you go, therefore. And then a second one there, you make disciples of all nations. But it's really just one. There's really just one. Go is supposed to be going. Go, it's the present participle. As you go, make disciples, make disciples. That is the singular call on the disciples' life. That is the singular call on the, in the mission that Jesus has given us. What he's essentially saying is, as you go, make disciples. As you baptize, make disciples. As you teach, make disciples. Whatever you do, wherever you go, as you live out the call that I've put on your life, as you live under my authority and with my presence, you go and you make disciples. That is, if you think about, to take up the very mantle of Christ himself. To take on for you Jesus' mission. You remember back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins to call his first disciples, right? Jesus begins to call his first disciples, and do you remember the call that he gives to them? He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That is, they didn't come to Jesus ready-made, all right? If you've been keeping up with us at all in Matthew... You know, Jesus' disciples did not come ready-made. They didn't really even understand who Jesus was until after Jesus is already raised from the dead. Jesus is constantly living His life with them and repeating Himself to them and calming them down and pushing them forward and encouraging them and and humbling them and going throughout all the towns of Galilee, all the way into Jerusalem, all the way down the Via della Rosa, and he is still still there, and he is ministering to his disciples. That Jesus took the last three and a half years of his life. This can't be lost on us. Jesus took the last three and a half years of his life, the entirety of his ministry on earth, and he basically gave it to 11 men. 11 men. 11 men that went everywhere that he taught. 11 men that shared meals with him around the fire at night. 11 men that he, he shared secrets and stories and laughs. 11 men that were with Jesus everywhere that Jesus went and did everything that Jesus did. And the whole purpose was that they came to Jesus as one thing and he intended for them to depart quite another. That they came to him as raw materials. But he said, that's okay. Leave your nets Leave your boot, leave, leave your boats, leave your tax booth. You come follow me, I will do the making. I will make you into something that you are not. I will make you into a fisher of men. That is he began 3 years earlier, preparing them for this moment. He began 3 years earlier, preparing them to take and inherit his mission, to begin an unstoppable work that is still going on today to disciple them in the way that they should make disciples, to teach them in the way that they should teach, to lead them in the way that they should lead others, so that ultimately they would be deployed, sent out to the reaches of the known world so that more people could know the good news about Christ, could know that Jesus had come and the Spirit was available to them, so that more people could be transformed into the image of Christ Himself. So so what we can say is, is that them becoming a disciple was for the purpose of them making disciples. In fact, if they at this point would have said, you know what, Jesus, we're out. None of us would have said they were apostles. None of us would have still said they were disciples. No, we would have said they must not have actually believed. They must not have actually trusted Jesus. They must not have actually believed that his mission was worthwhile and valuable. They must not have taken his teachings to heart. No, we can see that Jesus was pouring into them and Jesus was investing in them and Jesus was teaching them so that he might deploy them. Making disciples is about being disciples, brothers and sisters. Making disciples is about being disciples. You can't avoid making disciples if you are a disciple because the reason that Christ made you a disciple was so that you could know him and make him known so that you could walk in his ways as a disciple, and so that you could bring as many of those around you with you as you do. That means there's no shortcuts in this. He's very specific that we are to make disciples. But for us, as we live here in an efficient society, all about productivity, we, find, we try to find shortcuts, don't we? But there aren't any. There aren't any. Not if we take the commission of Christ seriously, the words of Jesus seriously. See, we're tempted to shortcut making disciples by making converts. We're tempted to, we're tempted to shortcut making disciples by making converts. That is, it's the temptation that if we can just get people here, if we can just get them to make an emotional decision, if we can just get them to raise their hand at the right time and say and mouth the right words, then if, then, 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 if they fall out of church, it's okay. It's okay. They went through the routine. They did the thing. Maybe they're not disciples of Jesus, but at least they're converts of Jesus. This is the kind of church this is the kind of church, the church that shortcuts making disciples to make converts, is the kind of church that's only interested in counting. How many did we have? How many have been baptized? How many, how many, how many? And we don't care where they are after that. Oh, brothers and sisters, this, this is a perversion of the truth. This is the shortcut of the gospel. This is an undermining of the scriptures and the authority therein. The second shortcut, we're tempted to shortcut making disciples by making excuses. There's one church that only wants to count, and there's another type of church that never wants to count. There's one type of church in which they lead people to know Jesus superficially. There's a second type of church that is so satisfied, they don't care if anybody comes to know Jesus at all. They're content. They're content with where they are with the Lord. They're content with what they know of the Lord. And if the baptistry was never filled and the waters were never stirring, they would hardly even notice. It would just mean one less person they'd have to know. One less person they'd have to meet. If you need an excuse to avoid making disciples, that is, if you need an excuse to avoid being a disciple, you will find them plentiful. Life is busy, people are mean, kids are young, jobs are overwhelming, money is tight, and no one will listen anyway. If you want a shortcut, if you're anxious for a shortcut, if you're looking to, for, a, for an end around the very mission of the Lord Jesus himself, you can find one, but don't consider yourself a disciple of the Lord. For if we were on the outside looking in, If you were on the outside looking in of that very same story, just as you would have said about the disciples in that day, you would have said they must not take his word seriously. They must not trust him. They must not really love him. They must not really believe him. Because if you believe him, you will go as he has sent you. You will go and be as he was. You will make disciples by being disciples. To make disciples implies that our mission is far more than to merely have someone attend a church service. It's far more than to have someone raise their hand at the right time. It's far more than to have someone pray a familiar prayer at a familiar time and then go about their merry way. No, brothers and sisters, there is no separation of conversion and discipleship. There is no separation of conversion and discipleship. The demons believe in Jesus and tremble, James says. The scriptures teach us that Satan himself believes that Jesus was raised for the dead. Oh, does he believe in the resurrection? But neither of them, neither of them will enjoy abundant life, eternal life with God forever. Now to be converted is to become a disciple. To be converted is to become a disciple. Iron City, we can't just convert them, count them, and carry on. It is, as Paul says, to begin your Christian faith on the milk of the word and then mature into the meat of the word, saying, I have seen Christ, but there is more yet to see. I know God, but I want to know God more. It is, as John says, to realize that it is obedience that evidences our love. For God and if we are not obedient and don't care for obedience then we have no love of God in us it is as Jesus himself has said the one who does the will of my father he is my brother and he is my sister you will not find a separation in the New Testament between conversion and discipleship we are not saved by faith plus works but we are saved by a faith that works there's a man that lives on my street that's going to be surprised when he finds himself in hell. Back when he was a teenager, he wasn't a bad kid, just mischievous and hormonal like the rest. He liked to have a good time and he liked to laugh with the guys, but he always knew when to clean it up. One Wednesday night after football season, he was invited by one of his friends, one of the same friends that he partied with to go to a big event that his church youth group was having. He knew some of the girls there, and that would be motivation enough for him. When he got there, he fit in just as well there as he did in the locker room as he did at the parties. That night, there was a man there who told a story about a young man who was driving home from prom when he was killed in a wreck, and it scared my neighbor to death. He said that he even cried that night. That night he raised his hand during the invitation when the preacher asked if he would like to believe in Jesus and not go to hell if he wrecked driving home. He talked with the youth minister for a minute or two and was so excited when the youth minister explained that he would never have to worry about this again. If he believed in Jesus, he was going to heaven and nothing could stop him. He came to church for a month or so after that, but it didn't really take. It was just boring and it didn't seem that anyone there was all that different from him. He tried to stop cussing for a while, but that then he figured it wasn't that big of a deal, and even if it was, God had forgiven him forever anyway. He went to college, sowed his wild oats, and now he has a family that seems to be about as normal as any family can be. He's been invited to church a few times, but it's just not his thing. He figures that God is everywhere and he's forgiven, so what's the big deal? He's thankful for Jesus but he's also thankful that he's not one of those radical, extreme Jesus types. If you press deeper for him to talk to you about his salvation, he won't shut you down. In fact, he'll actually get serious very suddenly and tell you about how real what he felt was. So real that, even, that he even cried and he's not the crying type. He felt it and he believed in Jesus and he's thankful to have his eternity settled so that now he can live his life. And then last week, he actually did die in a wreck driving home from work. As he stood before the Lord Jesus, he was in an instant terrified and realized that the gates of hell were no la- gates of heaven were no laughing matter. Jesus said to him depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. He tried best he could to make his case before the Lord. He told Jesus about the night he cried and the night he felt something so strongly. And the day he was baptized, he told Jesus what the youth minister had said. And now, how he had even given a church a shot once. He showed how much time he'd spent with his kids and how he always provided well. But Jesus responded, salvation is not by works, but faith. You trusted your tears. You trusted your feelings. You trusted your baptism. You trusted your actions, but you never actually trusted me. Where in your life can we find faith? Where in your life is the evidence of your love for me? Where in your life did you live as though I was your Lord and your treasure and your hope? You don't even know me, and I don't know you. You believe in me with as much faith as hell. I know it's a shock to you, but you are not my disciple. Depart from me. Brothers and sisters, is this story true? Is this story true? If we were to go throughout our community and we were to knock on doors, nine out of every 10 doors that we knocked on would say that they believed that Jesus was Lord, and yet two out of that very same 10 attend church. How is it that most people that you work with believe they will go to heaven when they die even though they live day in and day out as though Jesus isn't real at all? They are under the delusion under the delusion that you can be converted without being a disciple. They have been confused by our Christian marketing and confused by our Christian cliches. And brothers and sisters, it is sending our community to hell. It is sending our children to hell. It is sending our families to hell. It is sending to hell nice people who want to toe the line between paganism and Christian extremism, only to find out that Jesus spews out of his mouth the lukewarm. We must be disciples. And we must make disciples. By Jesus' power, Jesus' authority, jesus's presence we must take the mission of jesus upon ourselves to go to our families and to go to our children and to go to our workplaces and to go to every nook and cranny in all of this earth to all nations and tell them that they can be disciples and they can have hope and they can find deliverance forever it's impossible it's impossible The power of Christ is in you, and the power of Christ is with you. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.